Amen. Thank you, music team. Redeemed, restored, forgiven is the promise of those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have your New Testaments, if you will turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, our passage of study will begin in verse 23, and we'll go through Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. And this morning we are beginning a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, and it was preached by our Lord Jesus in Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7 encapsulate this first of five discourses that the Gospel of Matthew records that Jesus spoke to his disciples. And so for many, many weeks and months to come, we will dive in and study what God's Word has to say to us from the Sermon on the Mount. And I've entitled this sermon series, Kingdom Living, as we will learn what it means to live in God's kingdom. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, we will read down to Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. This is God's holy and authoritative word to us. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his frame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send Holy Spirit into our hearts to take the truth that is here in your word and apply it to our hearts. That we may see Jesus and see what he is teaching us. We pray in his name. Amen. If someone were to come to you and ask you a very simple question that might prove to be complicated in some cases, and just, but just asked you, what is a Christian? Could you, could you tell me, what, what is a Christian? 
How would you describe a Christian? How would you do it? What, what terms would you use? What stories would you tell to describe what a Christian is? Well, my guess is that most of us here in this house of the Lord this morning wouldn't start to describe what a Christian is in the terms that Jesus here lays out for us in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, look at some of these things that we read in Matthew chapter 5, that a, a Christian is someone who is poor in spirit, who mourns, who is meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. They're merciful, they're peacemakers, they're, and they're often persecuted. Would you use those terms to describe the Christian life? I don't think these are the terms that we would use. I don't think that we would go immediately to the terms that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, used to describe here kingdom living. What he is describing for us is the character and the attitudes that a believer in Christ is to have. But if we were to turn on the TV and ask what everybody else in the world thinks about especially American Christianity... Unfortunately, they wouldn't describe someone as meek, as mild, as hungering and thirsting for righteousness. No, it might be something very different. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus actually takes the time here in the Sermon on the Mount to to teach us, to disciple us, to show us, to tell us what a true Christian is, what a child of the king is, what kingdom living is all about, and especially to those who are following him. Look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, and then also in verse 1 of chapter 5, and look at what's going on here. Jesus' earthly ministry had really just begun and the Gospel of Matthew is recording for us the events that d- took place during his early ministry. And at this point, there were huge crowds following him. I mean, he was an ancient rock star, an ancient celebrity. Thousands upon thousands of people following him and waiting to hear him teach and to see what miracles that he would perform. And so here they are as he begins the Sermon on the Mount Great crowds following him, and what was Jesus going to do? Well, he was not about to tickle their ears or give them false teaching or perform some magic trick for them. He was going to teach them. Jesus was going to disciple them. He was going to instruct the people that were following him on what it is like to live in the kingdom that he had come to bring and how we are to follow him as his disciples. He was going to teach them great gospel truths. And the first thing that he begins to teach them here in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 are what is commonly called the Beatitudes. Again, these Beatitudes, when we first read them, sound like descriptions of someone who's kind of weak, Or maybe someone who is unhappy, not someone who is an enlightened Christian or someone who is 
happy, happy, happy all the time and experiencing victory, victory, victory all the time. (laughs) Jesus was not interested in tickling their ears and describing to them some false view, some happy, happy, happy view of the Christian life. He was discipling them. He was very real to them on what he was teaching them about what the Christian life, what kingdom living is about. But before we get into these Beatitudes, it's important for us to understand where this teaching, where this Sermon on the Mount comes from. There's some context going on here, and that's why we read verses 23 through 25 of Matthew chapter 4. So as we begin the study on the Sermon on the Mount, we must understand first what Jesus was talking about in verse 23 or what Matthew was describing here is Jesus teaching the people about the gospel of the kingdom. And when Matthew says that Jesus was going around teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he is now giving for us the thesis statement, the theme, the great purpose of what Jesus had come to this earth to teach and to proclaim, and it was the gospel of the kingdom. But for us to understand this, I want us to look at these verses that we read this morning and ask three questions. What is the gospel of the kingdom? How do we receive the gospel of the kingdom? And who is the gospel of the kingdom for? So the first is, what is the gospel of the kingdom? Look there in verse 23. Again, he, that is Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, all the region in the Middle East there, teaching in the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, and proclaiming, preaching, heralding the gospel of the kingdom. And again, Mark records this for us too in his gospel. And again, we find here in Matthew that we see clearly what Jesus' mission on this earth was, what he came about teaching and preaching and proclaiming was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And here Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of the gospel, or the good news, that God's kingdom was at hand, it had come, and this was his central message. This was his main focus. This is what he had come to do, to bring the kingdom of God. You may recall from New Testament reading that the word kingdom takes on many different uh, uses in certain phrases. You may have heard, as we just read here, the gospel of the kingdom. Or we'll read here in a minute, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And it's important to understand that in the New Testament, these are all synonymous terms. They all mean the same thing. The gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of God. This was, these were the terms used to describe the rule and reign of Christ that he had come to bring that was prophesied in the Old Testament. As Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the gospel, it was not going to come in the form of a conquering army. Nor did Jesus come to bring about some great political movement that people were going to be able to put their hope and salvation in. No, the kingdom of God here was appearing in the form of a man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the promise of the reign of the Almighty God that was prophesied in the Old Testament had now come to fruition through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this kingdom message that Jesus had come to bring, that he had come to inaugurate, it serves as the background for the Sermon on the Mount that we will study. But as I describe for you what the kingdom of God is like, it's described in very powerful terms. Great dominion, rule, reign, authority. We read about that this morning in Psalm 145 and in Daniel 7. But upon reading those, we may look around at this world, especially as Kyle prayed for us this morning, and we can easily say, I don't see the kingdom of God. I mean, where is it? Why is it not showing itself mightily and with power? Because I can't see it. Well, that brings up another question. How are we to view this kingdom? What is it to look like? How do we describe it? Biblically, the great theologian and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. The kingdom of God is in one, in one sense has not been established on earth yet. It is a kingdom which is to come, yes, but it is also a kingdom which has come. The kingdom of God is among you and within you. The kingdom of God is in every true Christian. And in the church, it means the reign of God, the reign of Christ, and Christ reigning today in every true Christian. This is the kingdom that Jesus had come to bring, and it was the kingdom that he is now proclaiming. And it exists in the hearts and lives of people, people he had come to save, and in the church. The kingdom is the church. It is his people. You are part of the kingdom of God if the teaching of Jesus and his lordship is in your heart and in your lives. If it controls the way you live and the way you see this world, if you are living according to a biblical world and life view, the kingdom is in you and the kingdom is in his church. The kingdom has now come. In the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is good news. This is the good news. This is the exciting news that Jesus had come to bring. But that may bring up another question. How do we receive the gospel of the kingdom? How do we receive the gospel of the kingdom? Look in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 5. Again, there were great crowds. Jesus went up on the mountain so that he could obviously instruct a very large crowd from a high position. He was getting ready to preach. But he also sat down and they came to him to hear what this rabbi, what this great teacher had to say. And the Bible simply records, he opened his mouth and he taught them. He opened his mouth and he taught them. How do we receive the gospel of the kingdom? Through the teaching of Jesus. Jesus taught them. He proclaimed to them. He healed them. And therefore he 
inaugurated the kingdom by his words, by the teaching that he was going to give to the disciples that day on the Sermon on the Mount. He opened up his mouth. He taught them. What, what did he teach them? He taught them old things. He taught them things that would have been very familiar to these Jews. Teachings from the Old Testament and how they apply to this kingdom life. But he also taught them new things, many new things about this kingdom living that we will read and study in the Sermon on the Mount. But specifically, he had a message to them about kingdom living. The kingdom had now come with the inauguration of his public ministry. And now the one true king of this kingdom had a message for his people. He had a message to proclaim to his kingdom. And his kingdom message was for the people of the New Testament. For how we are to live in this new age. But also, as we will read and study, these descriptions of Christian character are characteristics for the people of God of every age. The Old Testament and the New Testament. Think about this teaching, this discipleship opportunity, Jesus goes up on a mountain, and it probably hearkened back these ancient Jews, and should us as well, to the time of Moses, where where would Moses go up to speak to the Lord on Mount Sinai, where he was hidden, where he was veiled by the Shekinah glory, by the burning, fiery presence of the Lord, and the people were afraid In a sense, God was untouchable. He was unapproachable because he is holy, holy, holy. And now the Lord God was sitting right amongst them, teaching them, discipling the ones he loved. And he was approachable. And he was lovable. And he was condescending to teach, to instruct his people on kingdom living. So we receive this kingdom by looking to Jesus and letting him teach us, letting him disciple us. So what does this look like today? We don't have the luxury of time travel yet to go back and be one of those disciples in the crowd and literally look at Jesus and hear him teach. So how do we sit under his teaching today? Well, we do that very easily through the means of grace that he has given to us. Week after week, we get to come and we get to sit here in this church in these comfortable pews and let Jesus disciple us through his word, through his words actually spoken to his disciples. We have a Bible in our own language, in redneck English, that we can read and study and hear and see the teaching of Jesus. We have the sacraments that he has given to his church that he has said, do this in remembrance of me. The baptism where he says, look how I have washed you. I have made you clean. I have set you apart. And we have the fellowship 
of other brothers and sisters in Christ, something that is very dear to us here at Cornerstone. We are a community of believers devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. And when believers in Christ are gathered together, Jesus promises something very special. He is with them. He is with his people. He is teaching us. He is instructing us. We receive this kingdom through the means of grace, through his word, through his teaching. So we've looked at what is the kingdom and how do we receive this kingdom. But let's last look at who is the gospel of the kingdom for. Look with me in verse 3, the very first of eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, kingdom of heaven being synonymous with the gospel of the kingdom or the kingdom of God. So this begins the Beatitudes, eight phrases taught by our Lord Jesus to describe Christian character. They're very short, pithy sayings to, for us to remember, for us to soak in, for us to meditate on, and for us to see is the basis for what kingdom living is like and what he's going to teach in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But this week as I was studying, preparing for this, I thought, now wait a minute, we call these the Beatitudes. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> Where did we get that word? Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed or happy. And so they were called, termed long ago, hundreds of years ago, as the Beatitudes, the attitudes that we are to be, that we are to have. Because that's what Jesus is teaching for us here in the Sermon on the Mount and in these Beatitudes. He's teaching us what kingdom living, what Christians are to have who live in the kingdom of God. These are the characteristics that we are to have in our hearts and in our lives as we live in the kingdom. The Beatitudes are attitudes. They're attributes that Christians are to be. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We're not told in the Sermon on the Mount, Live like this and you will become Christian. Rather, we are told, Because you are a Christian, live like this. The Beatitudes are the character that we are to strive for. They are the attributes of a child of God. And the first thing that we are told in these Beatitudes is that those who are poor in spirit belong to the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the kingdom is for the poor in spirit. But what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's important for us to interpret this biblically and look at this in light of the other teachings of Scripture. But let's answer what it means to be poor in spirit by looking at what it does not mean. To be poor in spirit is not the same as being poor in things. It's not talking about material possessions here. To be poor in spirit is not a sociological designation. Jesus was not trying to set people apart socioeconomically in his kingdom. To be poor in spirit is not to have a, a bad self-image or low self-esteem or 
to be introverted. That's not what poor in spirit means. No, the scriptures teach that to be poor in spirit is to realize that we don't possess the means or the resources to save ourselves. We do not possess the means or the resources to save ourselves. To be poor in spirit, according to the Bible, is to be totally and completely dependent upon God for all things. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross that we cling. We are fallen. We are sinful. We possess no resources, no mental capacity, no willpower to choose whatever we like. We must depend upon the grace of God because being poor in spirit is to understand the gospel of grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8, the apostle Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. It is by grace, through faith in Christ, that we are saved. Those who are poor in spirit know that the world has nothing to offer them. And therefore they trust in the Lord as their only hope of salvation. This is wonderfully illustrated for us by a story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, where you have this great picture of what it means to be poor in spirit, where you have a Pharisee and a tax collector in the temple praying before Almighty God. And what is the Pharisee doing? Look at me, Lord. Look how awesome I am. Look at all these good works that I do. Aren't you proud of me? But Jesus contracts that with a tax collector. A good-for-nothing tax collector. I mean, an IRS agent. (laughs) Same thing. In the back. Beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me. A sinner. And Jesus starkly contrasts for us what it means to be poor in spirit versus to be proud. The tax collector knew that he did not have anything to contribute to his forgiveness. That it was totally by God's grace that he would be forgiven. And the Pharisee was proud. He was proud of his goodness, proud of his performance. But to be poor in spirit is to die to self. To be poor in spirit is the death of this kind of pride. Jesus says to be poor in spirit is to be blessed or blessed. Some commentators and even translations have used the word happy instead of blessed or blessed. But I don't believe that word does it justice. Because this is a very biblical word. It's a, it's a very profoundly rich word. And, and happy does not go far enough. Because to be blessed is to be divinely favored. It means to have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ showered down upon your life. And so that you are biblically happy far beyond you can imagine. It is to bask 
in the grace and love of God. And the kingdom of God is for the poor in spirit. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Another important part to being poor in spirit is knowing that even though we have been saved by grace, we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. In other words, we're not justified or saved by grace and then sanctified by our own efforts. We have to go and work for it as hard as we can to make God love us and approve of us. No, we need the continual grace of God in our lives to enable us to die more and more unto sin and to live more and more unto righteousness. Jerry Bridges says, the same grace that justifies us is the same grace that sanctifies us. We need the grace of God to live the Christian life, to enable us to die to sin and to live righteously. And to be poor in spirit is to daily fall upon our knees and ask the Lord to help us live the kingdom life that we have been called to live. But what is our default position? Our default position is to live for ourselves, is to live as if we don't need God and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. I've got it from here. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. Maybe we don't actually say this, but we often do this with our actions, and our actions show our true nature. No, to be poor in spirit is to see your great need. To see that we need the grace of God in our lives to grow as Christians because we can't do it on our own. And I would go so far as to say you need the church. You need the people of the living God, the people who are the expression of the kingdom of God to help you grow in grace and to help you be a part of the means of grace to live the Christian life, because we were meant to do it together. Kingdom living is about being in a kingdom with other people, growing in Christ. But no one is a better example of what it means to be poor in spirit than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate example. He is actually the perfect form of all of these attributes that we will read about in the Beatitudes. He is the model of perfect and complete obedience and reliance upon God and what it means to be poor in spirit. If you look back in your own time in Matthew chapter 4, you will see where Jesus is being tempted by Satan. And Satan is saying, I will give you all the world. I'll give you everything you ever want, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He demonstrates poor in spirit by quoting scripture, by relying upon the word of God to model what it means to be poor in spirit. And, of course, we know that he did this all the way to his death on the cross. He did not have to do this, but he did it willingly because it was God's will and because it was the only way for his people to be saved was through his perfect sacrifice, was by making himself poor so that we might be rich. 
What should our lives look like if we're to be truly poor in spirit? Well, first, our actions, our lives, and not just our lips, would demonstrate that we are totally dependent upon the Lord. Prayer would not be seen as just optional or occasional. It would become the central focus and very life breath of our lives. We would ask the Lord to use hardships, to use sufferings in our lives for His glory and to draw us closer to Him. When we are confused and lonely and lack wisdom, we would seek the Lord through prayer. We would search His Scriptures. That's just a few examples of what our lives might look like if we were truly poor in spirit. And why are we to be poor in spirit? Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is a, is a treasure. It's an inheritance for his people. To be in the kingdom is everything. To be out of the kingdom is in the, to be in the worst position imaginable. We must be willing to sell and to give up everything in order to be a part of this kingdom. We don't have to be rich or powerful or athletic or beautiful to enter the kingdom. We don't have to know the right people or go to the right church or be affiliated with the right political party. We don't have to live a perfect life. Jesus says we are to be poor in spirit. We are to die to ourselves so that we may be filled with the righteousness of God and be a part of the kingdom of heaven. So going forward in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at what Sinclair Ferguson decides, d- d- describes as it's not a sermon about an ideal life in an ideal world, but about kingdom life in a fallen world. Jesus is expounding the life of a Christian. And why study this sermon? Again, one last time from Lloyd-Jones. Nothing shows me the absolute need of the new birth and of the Holy Spirit and of his work within so much as the Sermon on the Mount. These beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, I am undone. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be biblically happy and divinely favored? Jesus teaches us that those who are poor in spirit, they belong to the kingdom of heaven. So would you come along with me as we study, as we explore what this kingdom life is about? Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you and we praise you as we do every week that you did not leave us to figure it out all by ourselves. That you have given us the, the teaching, the instruction, the discipleship of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to follow. Help us to see that to be poor in spirit is to be completely and utterly reliant upon you, O Lord, 
for everything. Lord, help us to be poor in spirit. Help us to walk and to be in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.